0: The auto repair shop had been around for about a year, and a customer had begun to bring his car in and felt pretty good about it. Thought they were doing a decent job. People in the community seemed to respect the company, and it appeared that the business was prospering. The owner was respectable, the employees helpful, efficient. Then one day, one of those particular customers that was a part of that auto group, uh, was in a different part of town and spotted what he thought was something really odd. In a different car shop, a mechanic from the car shop that he had been going to, this first car shop, this mechanic was bringing his own car not to the garage that he worked for, but to another garage, a different outfit. And the person that he was talking to in that garage wasn't a qualified mechanic. In fact, he didn't even have any training in cars. And this customer who was watching this go on, he thought, well, if this mechanic who works in this other auto store that I've been taking my car doesn't trust his own colleagues with his own car, why should I be trusting him with mine? And if this man was letting an untrained technician work on his car, why do I think that he knows anything about cars himself? And the kind of skill it takes to repair a car. Well, this is kind of a different situation, but this is basically what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the situation he now deals with we will look at today. We're gaining lessons here at Village Church this year, 2019, from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Last week, we were blessed as we listened to Paul's straight talk to his church about struggles in coming to terms with an incestuous relationship that was going on in the church. This is 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And Paul, as you remember challenged the church to be a counter-cultural force in society. Now we've reached chapter number 6, and Paul is dealing with another fiasco. The church in Corinth was what you might call a litigation center. The Christians were suing fellow Christians in secular court. Instead of being a Christian community, being accountable to each other, responsible to one another, and adjudicating disputes within their congregation that arose with the justice and morality that that God would give them, according to the biblical guidelines that were clear from his word. They were settling disputes in the church by taking them to the civil court system, the Roman system in Corinth and what made things even worse was the fact that in those days in Greek culture civil disputes in the public courts were like public entertainment that's what it was all about everyone wanted a front row seat everyone wanted to see and hear what was going on and if they couldn't crowd in and listen they surely wanted to to hear what was happening from someone who had been there the stories that came from these public spectacles became popular table talk in Corinth. Paul, knowing the situation and thinking of the church in Corinth, is aghast. Look what he says in verse number 5. He says, shame on you. Shame on you. First Corinthians chapter 5, 6 verse 5. How dare you behave so cold heartedly, so, so callously? And so Paul offers them some counsel that's threefold, and it's a powerful instruction, I believe, for us today. First of all, just to tell you what we're going to tell you, uh, he tells them that they need to lean into their identity, first and foremost. They're a community of faith. They're the people of God. Their actions, their attitude, their outlook should reflect This reality, that's first of all, lean into your identity as as children of God. Secondly, Paul challenges them to scrutinize their actions. To, instead of using civil courts and putting Christian against Christian, he says, this is taking advantage of the disadvantaged, really, in essence. We'll see that. And finally, Paul invites the church to embrace their calling. Embrace their calling. We've just witnessed a baptism and baptism signifies a born again experience and that born again experience happens for every believer because when we receive Christ into our lives, that is transformative and as we've witnessed the baptism of Leo and Kate just a few moments ago, that, that witness that baptism is a, what we could call a demarcation. They have a new identity. They are new people in Christ. The old mode has been replaced with a new way. And that's what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. That's the way they should act. That's the way they should be. And the verses here, as Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, are quite explicit. Let's look at them together. Verses 1 to 6. If any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So Paul is really laying into them. And most of us today, I have to admit, probably wonder why Paul is all riled up. Really, why is he so outraged. I can see why he'd be outraged about the situation that he spoke about in First Corinthians chapter 5. Incest, a man shacking up with his father's wife. That was our subject last week. But this one, this doesn't seem like a big deal compared to that one. This commotion about Christians bringing suits against Christians uh, almost seems sort of lame today. Every law court in the Western world for centuries has seen Christians bringing Christians to court. In Corinth, in our world, this is business as usual. Why does Paul find this litigious behavior going on in Corinth so scandalous? The answer is singular and compelling, I believe. God's people are to lean into and to live out their identity, not behave like everyone else in the world. That's why Paul is perturbed, because they're saints, and they're living like unbridled pagans. That's why. And when Christians do that, Paul says... We are, in essence, declaring our primary allegiance to pagan culture instead of to God. And so, he leans into them. He says in verse number one, again, you look at it. You dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people. Notice how he says it. Before who? The Lord's people, I kind of like the way the New King James translates it. It's a little bit more abrupt or stark, it sounds. You go to law courts before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Now, you can call it dreamy. You can call it idealistic. You can call me wishful if you want. But it's reality. It's reality. In Christ, I am a new creature. In Christ, we are part of a new community. In Christ, we are part of a covenant community. We are the people of God, Paul says. We are the called out. We have a new life, and we are bound together in Christ. We don't do life the way the world does. That's what Paul is saying. We don't litigate. We don't castigate. We don't interrogate. We don't discriminate. Oh, discriminate. I got too many Tates in there. We don't irritate. We don't berate. We don't excoriate. We don't inebriate. We don't asphyxiate. We don't exasperate. We don't flagellate. We don't fumigate. We don't profligate. We don't dislocate, we don't incarcerate. <laughs> I had to look those up. <laughs> I could keep going. There's a lot of AIDS in there. But we don't do that. We are not that. We are not that community. We are God's people. We do justly. We love mercy. We walk humbly with God. That's what we do. That's what we are. We always protect. We always trust. We always hope. We always persevere. That's what Paul says. We were once actioned by envy. We were once actioned by self-seeking, by payback. But we aren't anymore. We no longer delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 you see a new reality has transformed us a new reality now possesses us i kind of like the way the message bible catches the dynamic in this verse notice what it says i say this as bluntly as i can to wake you up to the stupidity of what you're doing (laughs) that's pretty straight isn't it first corinthians chapter 6 verse 5 How can Christians do this to Christians? To or to anyone, how can they do this? And Paul reframes the situation to show how scandalously absurd the situation really is. Chapter 6, 1 and 2. Or don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? Is that real? Where'd Paul get that? We're going to judge angels? Did he just come up with that? No, that's Old Testament prophecy. Daniel, in that great vision, heard heaven declare... Daniel chapter 7, judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And then verse number 27, sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under, under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. God's people, God's people are set in authority over the world and will judge even the angels. That's what it says. That all happens because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus is Messiah. And if he's Messiah, and if he rose from the dead, and if he ascended to heaven, and is ruling and reigning and ministering there, then everyone who belongs to him, Jesus Messiah, everyone who accepts him as Lord and Savior, are the true people of God. And the true people of God will judge the world. When Christ comes back and God exchanges our mortal bodies for immortal. We're given that great exchange. And we become eternally his people. When we ascend to heaven and Go there with Christ. It says in Revelation chapter 20, we are seated on thrones. Seated on thrones. In other words, we share authority with Jesus and the power to execute judgment. Imagine it. Just think of it. It's really beyond our imagination. We're going to judge the angels, not the faithful ones for sure. They have nothing for us to discriminate or or. or um, wonder about but we will have an opportunity to look carefully into the unfallen angelus and the leader of the pack the accuser and his de- demonic army who ever since the beginning of rebellion has sown discord and despair and destruction on earth in heaven and in our lives. We're going to have a chance to render judgment in this great controversy that is being played out here, this great controversy that's consuming our world. We get a chance to come to judgment and choose to believe God instead of the accuser. Revelation tells a story. And the script is already written. The script is already written. It's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. I want to sing that song. I want to sing that song. Let's practice it together, shall we? Say it with me. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. You alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Yes, we get a chance to judge the world, to judge the angels. It's true. It's our destiny. It is. And even though at this moment they may look like a long shot, okay, we may look like an unlikely crew to be judging anything or anyone. We ought to lean into this truth because it's the truth. It's the truth. Grade school happened for me a long, long time ago. Most everything in that era is gone from me. <laughs> from me. But I still remember just tidbits. It was when I was in the sixth grade, maybe seventh. I'm not sure exactly when, but I was a one of the student body leaders, officer, and I was also a rambunctious kid. I know that's hard to imagine, but I was. The teacher was out of the classroom, and I was in it having fun. (laughs) I was basically twirling a classmate by his arm, around and around. It was fun. I wasn't beaten up on it. We were just, you know, doing what sixth graders do, at least what I used to do. And the teacher came back into the room right in the middle of my antics. And she asked me to leave the room with her one more time. (laughs) And you know, I can't remember the words of her speech. And you know, I can't remember hardly a thing that happened in, in that era in my life. It's all gone from me. But I still, this one incident is imprinted on me. She said something like, how can you act like that? How can you act like that? I knew what she was saying. You're supposed to be a leader, a student leader. (laughs) What are you doing? You're a class officer, not a class clown. And I have to say, that's basically the same message, isn't it, that Paul is telling us today? You're the people of God. You are saints of God. Imagine it. What we do and who we are is a picture of God's kingdom. Unbelievable. Have mercy. That's what i got to say. Have mercy. We're going to judge the angels. Glory to God. But if that's happening then, we better press into this now. Huh? That's what Paul's saying. We've got to be what God calls us to be. And that's Paul's first message to the church in Corinth. He calls us saints. He says, you're the equipped of God. And God is empowering you. God is enabling you. God is with you to make a difference in your life. And so whatever decisions we make, whatever relations we build or repairs we make or fences we man... We ought to be making them in the light of who we are. When we're facing challenging disputes, we ought to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who taught us how to deal with those things in Matthew chapter 18, where he said to personally pray first and examine our own motives, what's going on in our own heart and in our own actions. And then, first and foremost, seek reconciliation. Seek understanding. Seek restoration of the relationship personally. But when that eludes us, and sometimes it does, then we are to seek the help of the church and resolve it. Try to be reconciled. But when disputes and differences even go beyond that, when they unravel beyond this point... It might be well to, for us to seek help, for, to seek reconciliation from maybe Christian mediation services or something. But our calling is not to be world conformers, but world shapers. World shapers, that's what we are. are. God calls us to conduct our affairs in such a way that we show ourselves to be the family of God be children of God, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. Well, secondly, I told you there's three points. The second point is that a serious consequence of litigating churches, like Corinth was, is that it puts member against member. And that's not supposed to happen in the body of Christ. We are family. We are community. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, when we say yes to him, it calls us to a unity. We become, as Paul says, we're going to look at that a little bit later in this series, we become the body of Christ. We are individually members of that body and it makes about as much sense for me to complain about someone else and berate them and judge them as it makes for an eye to complain about the hand or for the, I don't know, the ear about the toe. This is the second point that Paul wants to bring us to in this passage. The second point is that he's concerned that this, these disputes that are going among them in their midst is not only compromising their witness, it's also creating an abuse of power in the body of Christ where the privileged are taking advantage of the underprivileged. Now, how do I know that? Well, recent historical research on the court systems in the Roman Empire has shown that there was a strong systematic bias in favor of the wealthy and the well healed Are you surprised? Are you surprised? (laughs) I'm not. It's nothing new. The overwhelming majority on record of civil cases were brought by the wealthy and the powerful against people of less status and less means. That's historical record. And in addition to this, the judges themselves were part of the privileged class. Now put that together. So these judges would ordinarily give preference to the testimony of their peers. And the privileged class, well, they had the funds to make all this happen. And they had the money to hire a professional to argue their cases and the extra cash that was needed to Bribe the judges. That's what was happening. Here's how a writer during this period of history put it. Of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone? This is back in the time of Jesus, or after the time of Paul, this writer. Of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed? So a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. And the nightly juror who sits listening to the case approves with the record of his vote something bought. And that's something. Sounds like something that could have been written today. And Corinth was no exception to this picture. A Greek philosopher who lived during the time of Paul wrote this about Corinth. He said, Corinth is full of lawyers, innumerable perverting judgment. That's what he said about Corinth in the time of Paul. (laughs) Full of innumerable lawyers, perverting judgment. Now you put all this together, and the members of the Corinth church who were filing lawsuit against fellow members were probably the privileged and powerful. That's probably what was happening. And the defendants in these cases were the poor and the needy. And this is the picture that's consistent in the book of 1 Corinthians. When we look a little bit later, which we will get to someday here, in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about the deplorable situation that typified the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the church at Corinth. You read it in chapter number 11, verse 17 to 34 today sometime. The rich were feasting and the poor were going home marginalized and hungry. That's what was happening during the Lord's Supper in Corinth. That's why Paul is all over this issue. That's why he says it's not a win if you win in court. Paul says it'd be better for you to suffer some personal loss to be defrauded than to be wronged, than to be involved in this wrongdoing. Notice what he says, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Wow. It's better to... Be wronged, says Paul, than to do wrong. That's still true today, isn't it? Better to be wronged than to do wrong. Really, this is the way of Jesus, isn't it? It's the way of Jesus who said, turn the other cheek. It's the way of Jesus who said, go the second mile. This is the way of Jesus who said, if someone asked you for a coat to give them your shirt, if someone Ask you for help, you give them the help. That, That doesn't mean that Jesus is saying we should be a doormat, but it does mean that we should do everything we can in God's power that he's given us to create bridges of communication and reconciliation. I like the way Paul says it in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I love that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what Paul is saying as believers, as God's community, as part of this family of faith, our ambitions, our life, our actions are serious. God's kingdom is not about self-asserting that hurts others. Verse number 9, or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, says Paul. Don't you know that? When he says this, some people have said, wow, we ought to be good so that we can get good. But that's not really what's happening. You're not. It's not a case of being good so you can get it. We don't refrain from litigation. We don't refrain from lawsuits because it compromises our long-term prospects that's not it's not a business transaction rather it's the actions it's the attitude it's the behavior of someone that is a follower of jesus and it's inconsistent to do otherwise as baptized confessing full-fledged members of the body of christ of the church of god we have a new motive we have a new identity we have a new influence we have a new purpose in life And if there's conflict in the family of God, that's incongruent with our faith, with our identity. And so I won't go there because of it. The Christian way, the Jesus way, is a way of the cross. Jesus gave up his rights in order to give you and me rights The right to forgiveness, the right to salvation, the right to eternal life. In a culture that's, in a culture that's um, immersed in asserting our own rights, protecting our own rights, demanding our own rights, women's rights, civil rights, and even the inane in. in inalienable rights of our Constitution, all these rights that we are about, the whole concept of relinquishing rights seems out of character to us. But it's Jesus' way. It's not sheer fantasy. It's what God calls us to. But we should not allow that reaction that we think that it's too far-fetched. We should not allow that reaction to prevent us from asking today, in my church, am I walking in the footsteps of Jesus? Am I? Over 120 years ago, a guy by the name of Charles Sheldon—he was an American minister—he put his sermons on how to lead a loving life into a book. He called it "In His Steps." It was an immediate bestseller. 30 million sold within just a few years and another 20 million have been bought and read since that time, 50 million. And I'm sure that a lot of you have read that book. It's just a simple story. It's a simple story of how Jesus in the life calls us to a life transformation. And that's what it talks about, just the transformation of one life after another as they ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Walking in Jesus' way, that's what it's all about. It's a life of self-surrender. It's a life of self-sacrifice for Christ's sake and for the benefit of others. I said there were three points. Now we're on number three. And that is embrace your calling. You know, when we fall into quarrels, they disconnect us from each other. They disconnect us from God. And Paul says that that's really what's happening. He alludes to this when he uses the general term in verse number 9 of wrongdoers, But then he lists off a whole host of destructive behaviors. And you know that verse, First Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. It says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what the congregation in Corinth was before. They met Jesus Christ and became members of the body. This is what they were. They were self-indulgent. They were self-serving. They were self-destructive. They were sexually immoral. They were idolaters. They were homosexuals. They were thieves. They were drunkards. They were liars. They were mudslingers. They were cheats. And in all of these instances, in all of them, in all of them, true Christians, in Paul's day, And in our day, acknowledge their sinful behavior as sinful and repent. Assured of God's grace and God's overcoming power. My kids and I stood in line for a a ride at the fair. My children were much, much younger than today. And as we got closer, I saw the sign. I'd never seen one quite like that. It said, usually they say, you have to be this tall or you can't get on. This one said, if you're over this tall, you can't get on. (laughs) And so as we approached, and I saw this big line. I thought, I guess I'm not going in because I don't fit. I'm too big. That ride would be safe, unsafe if I were on it with my kids or just on it alone. It wouldn't be safe with me on it. So my kids got on, and with some anxiety, I stayed out. You know, the kingdom of God is not a fair ride. But the principles of this ride do apply. There are certain ways of behaving. There are certain lifestyles that just don't fit. This doesn't mean that God is arbitrary. This doesn't mean that God is capricious. He's just come up with these ideas and made them rules. He's not willy-nilly about these things. That's not the way he does it. Many, think, many people looking at Christianity think that that's exactly what we're about. They grumble against God and against the church, and they say this is such an unfair system. Rather, it's really just the creator God Unveiling his genuine model for humanity in Jesus Christ. That's really what it is. And there are certain ways of behaving that just don't fit. And if you want to be truthful, if you want to be a full human being, those ways of behaving have to be left aside. Coming on board to God's kingdom while still being that sort of a person is a liability both to the person and to the family. You know, these things are always contentious ones. I looked at these verses and I thought, wow, this is something. These are always contentious issues. You know, every generation has its own issues. Its own, you could call them blind spots its own sudden enthusiasm for some rules and angry rejection of others. That's the way it is, every generation. And like with all the ones before, feelings run high high about these things. People are quick to react when something they have assumed is perfectly all right and perhaps has been told to them by others that it's perfectly all right is then declared to be wrong. I know that emotions run high. But as we all know, it's easy, desperately easy, to be deceived on issues like this and to fool ourselves into thinking that everything is all right when it's really not all right. Sometimes when I'm driving my car and I really don't know where I'm going, (laughs) I'm tempted to continue down the road and not stop and look at the map because I know it'll take me a little bit of time to do that but it's usually best for me to do that. To get my bearings instead of just driving on. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here for the church in Corinth and for us today. He warns us. Is it possible to be on the wrong road and not know it? It is. You know, sincerity and personal convictions aren't enough. There is it does happen that people are sincerely wrong. Those who killed Jesus were sincerely wrong. They thought they were right. When we think of that twisted thinking, it makes us shudder, doesn't it? That someone could do that. But we're not immune to making those kind of mistakes either. To think what's wrong is right. And right is wrong. Many in today's world have drunk so deeply from the anything-goes culture that the mere suggestion of moral restriction is offensive. But the road to permissiveness is littered with human devastation. Paul uses two words in this passage that have been debated over and over, but clearly refer to the practice of male homosexuality. Paul puts both of them on the unacceptable behavior list. And as with everything else on that list, there are practices that some people find themselves wanting to engage in. So much so that these practices have become identifying labels, a hidden identity that needs to be discovered and recognized. Now Paul in these verses isn't suggesting that sexual error is any, di- is any different than any other error. Any error of any kind. But the point he is making with this and other distorted ways of behaving is that it takes away from God's beautiful design in the kingdom of God. That's what happens. He's not trying to keep us off the ride He wants everyone to know the real joy of living. That's what he wants. Which is why he's provided the way to leave such a destructive past and present behind and move forward into the future. And that's the last verse. He says, you can be washed. You can be cleansed. Whatever has happened in your past, it doesn't matter what your past is. You can be one of God's special people. And that's what I want to tell you today. That's what I want to hear today. 1 Corinthians 6, And this is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Corinth, they were a bunch of motley believers. A bunch of malcontents. And I have to say, so are we. So are we. But we've been washed. Huh? We've been washed. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. The old past, the old ways is dead and gone. And along with it, it's disruptive and destructive ways. Those are buried, dead, and gone through the forgiving grace of God. We've been cleansed, Paul says. Cleansed, sanctified, set apart for God's special service. We are Jesus-owned, jesus owned Jesus made holy, Christ honoring, consecrated members of God's covenant family. That's what we are. And we have a new focus, a new purpose, a high calling. We were unjust, but we're justified. We were unholy, but we're rendered holy. We were blameful, but now we're blameless. In God's courtroom. And through the forgiving, restoring, cleansing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we're now members of his family and we live different. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for living in us and bringing about in us your perfect picture. You're at work in us even now. Your power to restore and remake and transform us is beyond comprehension. And we just pray that you would put your strength to our lives, Lord, and remake us in your image that we can be this community of faith, this community of believers, followers, born again, transformed by your grace and walking with mercy and justice, and humility with you. That's our prayer. And to that end, we give ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.